0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is the Reverend Deborah McKnight. In today's show, Reverend McKnight talks about her journey to being ordained in the United Methodist Church, living her faith as a practice and a love for liturgy. She also talks about founding Urban Abbey, a congregation flourishing in downtown Omaha, despite national trends showing church attendance in decline. And shares how, as an advocate for social justice, women's rights, and the LGBTQ plus community, she seeks to heal the wounds created by conservative Christianity.
1: And not just the Christian church, but like every religion gets like culture sort of draws it into being these like moral taskmasters or right like or this kind of guideline makers to help with how we treat each other and we need to care about how we treat each other but I don't know that just making a list of what you should do and shouldn't do is ever what any like spiritual tradition intends and so I think like This work of actually thinking about it is much more challenging.
0: Rev. Deborah McKnight earned a Master of Divinity degree from the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in 2008, and she was ordained in the United Methodist Church in 2010. Rev. McKnight is the founding pastor of Urban Abbey a United Methodist congregation in downtown Omaha, Nebraska. In 2015, Urban Abbey became an independent chartered congregation and grew to three Sunday services and weekday programming. During an era in which attendance at mainline Protestant churches in the United States has declined, Urban Abbey has succeeded as a new church start and is continually growing. Reverend Deborah McKnight, welcome to Lives.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: How did faith show up in your childhood?
1: Well, my family had gone to the Methodist Church, my parents, my grandparents, and we actually lived across the street from the Plattsmith Methodist Church. And so it was just, I mean, literally always right there. I assume my mom needed a break, but now as an adult, and that she, like the pastor's spouses would kind of entertain us with places they had been in the world or uh, different things they had found on um, like while they were studying places or learning places. And so I just was always nurtured in the church and it didn't seem like weird or strange. And then when I was in middle school, I was in confirmation and our pastor, his wife was actually a clergy woman in the Lutheran denomination though she was practicing as a chiropractor in town. So I don't know what that story is, but uh, I'm sure it was still a hard time to be a clergywoman. So they were my confirmation teachers and they would take me to lunch down on Main Street and they'd say, you should think about being a pastor. And I would say, oh, I have a plan and I'm gonna go to Africa and study elephants because we really need to save the environment. And so this clergywoman said, okay, you care about the environment. Well, let's start an ecology group. And I went to the church council and told them about uh, styrofoam cups, right? Every church has those tiny white styrofoam coffee cups. And so uh, they stopped using cups for a while. I've been there. They have them back, but, (laughs) but at least for like a seventh grade girl I went to the church council. I gave them a little report. Looking back now, I think that that pastor was just incredibly nourishing and um, supportive and sort of expansive about what church and what faith means, right?
0: What was it that those spiritual mentors that you had at the time saw in you that made them say from what seems to be quite an early age, you should be thinking about a life in faith.
1: Yeah i I would be curious to ask them. I don't know. I I think that I have probably was a good participant and listener and present and thoughtful um, and critical, probably uh, in some ways. But you know, growing up, i I had to be in sort of the special education for reading and. I had to go to a speech pathologist and I just always felt so behind in school. uh, It was just a real slog. Right. And then I caught up, but I just never felt like really smart or really gifted or really capable. Right. I just felt like I, I could work really hard and keep up. And, um, and so when someone like, it just was really special to me that they said, Oh, you can, like you can do this and you can speak up and, and we're going to listen
0: somewhat surprising to hear you talk about needing some extra support to move through whatever the format of education was in those early years. How were you aware at that time of being different, feeling as if you were perhaps a little outside because you were receiving some kind of special attention around educational needs? Or do you look back and just think, no, it just added to my sense of fortitude and grit
1: yeah, I, I mean, I had to start doing homework like in second grade. Like my parents were really determined that they would help me learn and I wouldn't have to be held back a year, which, you know, probably my brain probably just wasn't ready for what was like what we were learning, right? It just seemed like mud. But I am sort of grateful because I did catch up, right? And and i I think that time taught me like, yeah, you can get help. Uh, and I can get help. And because I was super tiny and nobody, like I'm not threatening to anybody. Uh, n- none of the kids really picked on me or anything. So I didn't have a negative experience or bullying or anything like that, which I'm sure could happen. So like, I just felt like everybody was kind of rooting for me and I could work hard. And then later like I had learned these skills of working hard and so I could apply them sort of on a level playing field in high school and college.
0: Outside of faith as such, living within a family environment, a, a town environment where you had a, a faith practice and a, and a sort of faith context, What stands out to you from your childhood being raised in Plasma?
1: Yeah. I mean, I felt so much love from my town, right? Like it's a small town. My grandpa had been the track coach and the cross country coach, and he was beloved. And my grandma and like my parents, my dad was, is, not was, the dentist in town. His brothers were all physicians, not in town, but they were like leaders and 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 I know like my parents worked really hard at being on the school board and trying to make positive change and trying to advocate for public education and advocating for spending more on public education and building buildings. And uh, like my mom brought the first woman superintendent when she was well, as a part of her time on the school board. And so I got to watch my parents do, I think, what is really hard, which is meaningful local politics. And that like really hard space of people you know for a long time, not always being kind to you when, when you disagree, but also them being able to leverage that deep connection that they had. So I grew up already known before I entered the room. And sometimes even just around Nebraska, like my grandpa was on the, coach something hall of fame. And, and like, so people know him. And so it was kind of a, a charmed space and, and a, a safe sort of naive space too. So I didn't know a lot about like racism or sexism or class issues or things like that too.
0: So you had a plan and that plan was to save elephants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it appears in hindsight, maybe what did happen is at least for college purposes, you went to the University of Nebraska and your major was in psychology. There were some minors, of course, accompanying that. But what were the choices and the decisions that motivated that particular field of study?
1: Yeah. So I started out as a, like, I'm going to do biology and maybe be a dentist or an environmental lawyer or something. My entire family is, they're all medical professionals, right? So science is the key. And um, I tried so hard in those like chemistry classes and calculus. And like I went to every office hour. One professor even gave me what was the final exam with different numbers and said, here, practice this. And I I had always thought about being a pastor, but I had never like said it out loud. Right. And then I was just in this struggling space and my mom kindly was trying to get me to think of other jobs. She's like, what about being a speech pathologist? What about being a teacher? What about this? What about this? And I was like, I'm going to go to seminary and be a pastor. And then it was just out. And so I started exploring that and changed my major and added women's studies, which was like so wonderful for me uh, to have added. And that was kind of where I just started to really dive in. And I told my pastor at home and there's a a Baptist pastor in town who looking back, I'm like, oh, wow, a Baptist pastor. But they, they helped me. They were excited for me. Um, and we started the process in the Methodist Church.
0: Now, I may have my timeline wrong then, but there's a point where I think before you went to seminary, that you spent time living and working in Germany. I did. And you were working in the field of education with active service personnel. What's that story? Like, how did you end up going to Germany?
1: So like all good 16-year-olds, I picked my first husband and we got married. Uh, I graduated from Lincoln. In 98, in August, and a week later we got married and a week later we flew to Germany where he was stationed for the Air Force. And like getting to live in Europe was probably the best thing about that relationship. And there were many other growing uh, learning opportunities, but it was also like being in Germany I mean, I had grappled with people who didn't think I should be a pastor in college when I met the navigators and they um, invited me for the pizza and boys and I showed up and then it turned out they were on the FBI list of new religious movements and it like they changed their Bible study to why women are secondary. Like they made me a binder of all the verses that said I should be quiet in church or women are subservient to husbands and like it had charts, it had graphs. I like, I wish I had kept it, but it used to make me so stressed. And my pastor at home, I mean, I think if a kid brought this to me, I'd be like, yeah, let's just get out of that group. But he's like, well, here's this book and here's this book and here's this book. And and I would go back to the Bible study and I'd say, well, what about the woman at the well? And what about this? And they didn't have that in their binder everyone was like 18 to 20. So everybody just started crying. But when I encountered it, when I was in Germany, like they were adults and, and I didn't have like the same support system around. And my relationship was not a healthy relationship. And so I was putting most of my energy or creative energy into that relationship. And I I can even see that looking back, like, Like before that, I, you know, started all these things with friends in high school and then I put my energy into that relationship. And then when it was over, I went back to like starting things and doing things with and putting creative energy other places. So I, so that's how I ended up in Germany, which was lovely. And I got to see just so many things and get to be in a a culture that was so different and be opened in a new way.
0: How long were you there for? And more importantly, what are the lessons that, that shaped who you are?
1: Yeah. So I was there from like 98 to 2000. Uh, it was before nine eleven. we got back. And so one, like I got to be away from home and a lot on my own uh, because of military deployments. And I got to see like different cultures approach to health care, uh, different cultures approach to gender identity uh, different spaces like I had had been in kind of conservative spaces and I wasn't really a teetotaler but I hadn't really thought about alcohol and how it's like you know part of the culture and like that moderation and people can take care and then I got to see all of the like amazing things I had learned about in all of my uh, church history classes so like I was probably the only person on Ramstein Air Force Base trying to figure out how to get to Wittenberg, Germany. And like the name of Wittenberg is changed to Lutherstadt. And I was like, I kept asking this travel agent, I'm trying to get to Wittenberg. And she's like, that's not a city. And I was like, no, it is. And I, I, was, I was like, I need a map. Can you get me a help? Can we get a map? And, And I was like, oh, it's called Lutherstadt. Like, I'm just trying to get to this Luther place and... So I got to see all of that. I, it was my first job, real like first real job was in the Air Force, working in the Air Force community and those dynamics of people who have power and authority in that space. And also like you're there as a dependent, they're real clear you're a dependent, like you have to sign everything with your spouse's social security, which I know they probably don't do now, but you know, like. I got a speeding ticket while my ex-husband was deployed to Sicily and like they wouldn't give it to me because I'm just a dependent. So it just like never got paid. And then by the time he got back, I was like in trouble, trouble uh, for this outstanding ticket. But it was sort of odd to be like there with under someone else's identity in a sense.
0: So you were turn- and for whatever reasons that relationship is not one that's going to be a long-term part of your life. But there is this moment, therefore, where having said out loud that you do see a calling to the church, that you do respond to that. So what is that moment of transition? How did that come about? And how did you go about committing to going to seminary?
1: Yeah, I I feel like In some ways, I kind of got lost in that time. Like I started to think, am I going to seminary to prove to these assholes that I can? Or am I going because it's the right thing for me? And so we had come back to the United States and he was finishing his bachelor's degree at Lincoln. And I got a master's in education and I was just about to finish and he was about to finish and then we got a divorce and just out of that I was like I'm going to go to seminary now like I am free I don't have to repick my career path based on like what's going to be easy for a military spouse to do right away I went into the pastor I told him like about my divorce and I said I'm ready to go to seminary and so The Methodist Church just put me right back into the process. And I looked at Northwestern and SMU and Duke Divinity School. And then my car got snowed on a lot that winter when I, as a 26-year-old, was living the dream in my parents' basement and substitute teaching at the high school I had attended. So I was like, I'm tired of digging my car out. Uh, And at least in um, like Garrett by Northwestern is super progressive and that felt right. But SMU was like theologically diverse, right? Like, and I just thought, I just feel right about being here. I had made a list of prices and I started adding in parking and, and like every little price to Chicago. And someone was like, I feel like you're trying to make this reasonable, so Maybe you just want to go there, uh, even if it doesn't make the most sense financially. So that's how I got to Dallas. And and once I got there, the first week I called my mom and I said, I'm going to be coming home. This is too hard. And she said, why don't you wait at least a month or maybe a whole semester? And so I went from just kind of surviving and grieving and uncertain to really like a time of thriving and learning about who I was and and sort of figuring out my own voice and not needing a partner to be an amplifier for it, right? So it was just like the best space and time for me to re-understand myself and to get to learn and to find new words for what I had always felt.
0: You've talked about a number of faith practices. And I I get the sense, of course, that Methodism was more proximate to your childhood, your, Mm -hmm. your upbringing. And so I'm curious why Methodism? And if you wouldn't mind just giving a sense of, you know, what is Methodism? Sure.
1: I mean, there was a point in seminary where I made an active choice to stay Methodist and be United Methodist as a hope of changing the larger church. But the the part of the Methodist tradition that I value so much is that, so John Wesley starts the Methodist tradition, and it's really like a campus ministry. His younger brother and their friends are like, we're not feeling it. So uh, they start doing the things that they see Jesus doing in the scripture, like spending time with people in prison, spending time with people in poverty, spending time, uh, they try to start like thinking about health and and they study scripture and they go to church and, and they don't really intend to start a church, of course, but they have this shared method of faith. And it's not a creed that you have to memorize or a right doctrine. It's a right practice, which is also how like Methodists today end up being so theologically diverse because there's not an absolute. There is this shared practice and shared exploration with these parameters. But people can end up, you know, in a lot of different places. So like that's a part of the Methodist tradition that I really value. And even as the church has been sort of going through changes right now, when I thought about having to leave the church, not just in seminary, but later in um, 2019, when the last general conference happened, uh, which is kind of like Methodist Olympics and people are elected every four years and they get to set the kind of guidance around the church. It's tremendously democratic and unruly and not able to get anything changed. It grew up at the same time as the United States. So it just really modeled itself after that structurally. But as I thought about leaving, I just, I feel like it's a really lovely way to practice faith. And that there is a lot of grace in it, and that there's a lot of room to understand yourself better, and by understanding yourself better, to be present in a way like you can be rooted in love, so you can actually be useful uh, to your family and your friends and your neighbors and your community.
0: There's something on the Urban Abbey website that that talks about its foundation in Methodism, and there there's reference in the description of the Abbey, talking about inheriting the tradition of looking at your faith through a lens of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience with a goal uh, towards thinking, feeling, and acting people, humans who make mistakes and understand grace as an agent that helps you grow into the people that God created you to be. And the faith is not a single moment of conviction. It's a practice that you choose each day and each moment. And it really strikes me that that description suggests not only a living broader church a living ideology, but also something that is extremely personal to an individual's demonstration of what that faith means in their everyday life. And I'm curious, and it sounds to me as if you yourself are living that out each day, regardless of the fact that you are a minister ministering to people, but in your own life, you are endeavoring each day to to manifest the behavior of practicing a faith, as opposed to just reciting, as it were, right. a mantra.
1: I mean, and and not always well, but um, <laughs> uh, just I I think like the hard part of faith, which is I think why uh, maybe it became easier for like the church universal, and not just the Christian church, but like every religion gets. Like culture sort of draws it into being these like moral taskmasters or, right, like, or this kind of guideline makers to help with how we treat each other. And we need to care about how we treat each other. But I don't know that just making a list of what you should do and shouldn't do is ever what any like spiritual tradition intends. And so I think like this work of actually thinking about it is much more challenging. And this work of actually thinking about where did I need to grow today? Like, where was I a bit rushed or unkind or cruel? Or where did I shy away from saying what I really needed to say? I think that's the hard part of a deep faith. And I think that most religious traditions have an easy place to practice it culturally, maybe. And then if you just keep taking a journey inward, there's so much to find and uncover. And it's probably going to make you really uncomfortable before or as it is, as it helps to center you and grow you.
0: If this Methodist faith practice is as organic and uncomfortable and as joyful as you're describing it at a personal level, how do you go about the practice of ministering to others when you yourself are on this convoluted journey that's n- never quite certain?
1: Yeah, I mean, so one thing, like people come to the Abbey and they kind of have a set expectation of what's gonna what it's going to be like, right? And what we're going to do and how they've come from churches where like everybody gave soup away or what, like they all had programs. And I try really hard to move us from this sense of like, let's have a program or a project to how do we think about presence? And so sometimes maybe we gather to do that practice in a group, like for some kind of service effort or someone asked us for help. So I try to wait for people to say, We need help, right? Like we need folks to show up for this. Sometimes people feel like we don't do anything. And I'm like, well, we do, we, you can do a lot of things. Like, what are we doing? What are you doing? And how are you showing up at work? And when you're at that table, do you advocate for the lowest paid person in the, in the company or, and that's really hard to do. Like it would be easier to do a service project than to be that person at the table who says, What do we pay the custodians? And so trying to be a space where we can start thinking about those things, that's part of what I hope we can do at the Abbey. The other part that I hope we do is this practice of hospitality. So the coffee bar part of the Abbey, it's like the best and worst learning space because hospitality is 100% a spiritual practice. Like there are lovely, beautiful moments and really sweet, kind, fun, delightful folks that come in and you get to be with them and chat and all of this. And then, you know, there are super rude, strange, weird, mean things that happen too, or people who poop in the urinal or like, I mean, just food service, uh, hospitality work. It is hard work. And, you know, the early monastics practiced hospitality as a spiritual practice. And so I feel like that's something that is teaching and reteaching me and our staff. And sometimes we have folks who volunteer. It's teaching the people on Sunday because sometimes like we present less as a church and more as a coffee shop. And so one time we had a lady come in and demand that we grind her coffee, like while I was preaching And uh, so sometimes like strange things happen that never happened in when I was at first church, you know, so so that practice of hospitality and really trying to practice it yourself and then the practice of generosity. Like, I think that's a hard practice. We as an Abbey give away 10 percent of our sales, which sometimes has been painful to see that check leave the building. but. My hope is like we do this collectively or communally. And then we are also asking people to try it individually. And so that practice, that's been hard for me personally. That Like I would always buy more things and that that little dollar bin at Target, that's very attractive to me. And before I turned 40 and ended up with plantar fasciitis, I had like quite an enormous shoe collection that I was like, if I had died, people would have been like, "Oh, Deborah, she really loved chai latte and shoes." And so, having to take stock of like what your budget says about you—that's hard work spiritually uh, for me as a person, and and for us as a community.
0: So, we talked a little bit about Urban Abbey in terms of what it's endeavoring to manifest for itself and for the people that are part of the congregation, the community there. What is the genesis of? urban abbey i I seem to recall reading that its initial iteration before it formed into urban abbey was something called wesley pub Mm -hmm. and then it became urban abbey Could, could you just talk a little bit about where did this come from
1: yeah well i in seminary i wrote a paper about some place in seattle that was called luther's hall and it was a bar or a pub that the pastor was a bartender and they did all this kind of community work together. And I assure you it exists, but it must have closed because later I looked for it and I cannot find it. But um I wanted to make space that can just be part of everyday life and that we can blend what's sacred and what's profane, right? That that every latte matters and every cup of coffee is sacred and that what's sacred isn't set off and and in some place that's shiny and we only use an hour a week. Um, what is sacred is everyday stuff and how we gather and how can we be relevant in people's lives all the time. So the space itself, you know, it's not perfect for worship. I had to start standing on a thing because nobody could see me, but other people are fine. But it's it's a living sanctuary all the time instead of a sanctuary that a church would use you know, an hour or two hours a week. I I wanted to make a space like that. We had started with Wesley Pub. It was church with beer. It was kind of young adult focused. I had a Colbert clip, a piece of feminist poetry, a little micro sermonette, and I would divide people into like groups based on playing cards. So first they'd be with the suit and then with the number to try and meet someone else. And um, I got in trouble. Well, I got invited to the bishop's office because people found out. So Methodists are historically teetotalers, but I wasn't breaking any rules because I really checked all the rules. That's succeeding enough that nobody wants to stop it. The bishop asked me, could you just do it with coffee? And I said, no, absolutely not. And then two years later, I'm in a meeting where the new district superintendent puts me on the spot to talk about Wesley Pobb and uh, then the director of new church development pulls me aside and she says, well, you've essentially started a new church. Let's talk. So new church development in church circles is like kind of this, <laughs> I don't know, it's very it's hyper-masculine in the worst ways and uh, it's usually like a new church start is out in a suburb with a cute white guy who plays guitar, and he has a piercing or a tattoo, but never both, like it would be too much. Uh, and they have like five adorable children and a very blonde wife. And they all go, so like they'd start inviting me to these new church start meetings. And like, I'm the only woman there. I ride with another pastor and they're like, oh, are you Craig's wife? I was like, no, you know, we're Methodist and we've been ordaining women for 50 years. So I'm a lady pastor. I don't know." And it's all this, like, it's really, ugh, just, it's gross. I I don't know. But that's how I get a grant (laughs) to, I say, well, I'll do this new church start if we don't do it in any of the standard ways. And so through a bunch of paperwork and finagling and smiling and then rewriting, the Methodist church gives me one of their largest new church start grants in Nebraska to knowingly start a progressive, inclusive downtown community in a neighborhood, which like there's some kind of national survey was very uninterested in traditional religion, very skeptical of clergy. And um, so like hard.
0: As we said in your bio, Most new churches struggle and certainly the national trend in traditional attendance is in decline. Your urban Abbey is flourishing. Why? What's the secret source?
1: I mean, if we could figure that out for sure, I could probably charge the church a lot of consultation fees. Um, (laughs) I feel like, what we do is just try to be present and build relationships and get to know people and not try to so much of church growth stuff is about getting the people in and making them like this template of what a good Christian looks like. Right. Um, And it's just all like a rehash of domination. So I, I, in seminary, wrote this paper called Feminist Emancipatory Evangelism about this kind of, like, how can we be church in a way that meets everybody where they are, that honors everybody where they are and builds relationships no matter what people want out of it? Because if we're going to make our culture better and more life-giving and more loving, like, we're going to need to know everybody and be connected to everybody no matter what they believe, think, feel about church. Part of it has been like a, a discipline of showing up and a, a resilience in just staying present with people. I tried not to do anything by myself. I mean, when we were newer, like that was sort of essential, right? Because we didn't have capacity. But over time, we, we built these relationships to where we, people could trust us. Like there was a time where we tried to be partners with the Women's Fund and the WCA, and they were like, no. And I was like, you don't, you don't even want like the 10% from our coffee bar. Like you're the women's fund. I'm a woman. Let's do this. But then like, I just, I will relentlessly grow on people. Um, <laughs> like I'm just going to show up and smile. And do you need something? How can I help? And, um, so over time, like we built trust and, And now like when those organizations need help, like they'll call us, right? Like we, we're the church that hosts, let's talk about sex, a, a sex ed space for parents with kids, like to, to figure out how to talk with their kids and they needed a space and they called. So I think that part of our success has been that we are trying to focus on relationships and growing relationships in a meaningful way. And that's like, I don't care how someone identifies, if they identify as Christian or not. I don't care about that. I do care if we can practice something together that's life-giving, that is good for the whole community.
0: I have a sense from everything you've described and want to know about you, All of these things tell me that you are perhaps part of that tradition of faith leaders who speak against the status quo when that status quo is oppressive, which I applaud. I also recognize that that probably places you in a place where it's taking some toll on you as an individual, as someone who practices a faith, but perhaps is not appreciated. Uh, wanting to preach a ministry that's more forgiving and graceful and loving. How have you navigated uh, that resistance, perhaps that not even a lack of appreciation, but, but perhaps that antagonism sure. towards how you live your faith?
1: Well, I mean, within the United Methodist Church, I've, I feel like I've had to, like, I was a real teacher pleaser, right? And, the church has been super affirming and then super challenging at the same time, right? Like they've been, they always come through with the money and the capital, right? But it's like I play my friend calls it patriarchy chicken, or we call it that together, and like they, there's always this like kind of, yeah, okay, you want to take that grant? Hmm. Let's figure that out. So there's been like that kind of work with the within the institutional church. And then, um, so at some point, you know, with coaching and support people and therapists, I've just started to try to give up on getting their approval, right? Like, that's not what I'm going for. And so that was important learning for me to just say, what am I really here for? And that's not it. (laughs) That doesn't get to take time. Uh, I will advocate for funding for like our campus ministry and all of that. That we do but I'm done trying to get them to love me I just want to do what I'm doing and be with folks the other people like the gift of the Abbey is like in terms of social justice work in the community I don't have a bunch of church members who are gonna like send me mean emails because I organized a letter about abortion or anything really and so within like that community I have support we have each other and so when we when something kind of harsh happens or mean happens um, I have this gift of I'm not alone and that we're in this together and so like when we had a bomb threat we had so many community organizations and individuals like reach out to us some church people brought us food because that's, you know, like, what else would you do but bring some food? Or um, like the Women's Fund came and helped us with some therapists and people have given us money and support. So there's that like gift of community. And then the the other way, like I've tried to recently start dealing with sort of not FBI level Uh, emails but other ones that are just sort of annoying or they've called me a witch or something so last year I did a sermon on near Halloween about the spiritual practice of fun and I dressed as Glenda the good witch and one of my church members made this fantastic costume and I read all the mean emails and And like when we have protesters outside the Abbey, we respond with ukuleles because who can be mad at like the cutest, tiniest, sweetest instrument around. So I'm trying to find like these creative spaces for resistance. And then I took a sabbatical and some pauses to rest, you know, to, to really try to recharge or to take a moment. So that's been how I've tried to approach those negative spaces that, that I tend to invite by my, well, that, that find me. I I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to invite them. I started the drag story hour just because I thought it'd be fun. I didn't think people would be so
0: hostile. How do you think we move past this moment where it seems as if it's less about political differences than it is more about an unwillingness to love, but an, an inclination to hate. Do do you see some way that we can move beyond this moment?
1: Um, well, I wish I did. I mean, i I feel like that's part of faith, is that we hear these ancient stories of people who were in bad, ugly, oppressive spaces and how they found surprising ways out like so surprising that that we're going to talk about it as walking through you know the water moves out of the way uh, to leave Egypt or so these are powerful metaphors that I think we can stay anchored in and there are occasional glimpses that remind me of how we can get out which is like we when we were pre-covid story time drag story hour we had this group of protesters all the time. And then we had this group of people who sang and and just stayed chatting with them. And one of our the friends of the Abbey, who's a Buddhist monk, she's down there and she's like, this couple, um, this man yells at a child and she says, oh, well, I didn't think you came down here to scare children. Um, she's like, well, he's, I'm not trying to scare the child. I'm just trying to keep him safe from going inside. And she said, well, I saw him grab his dad's leg close and um, that's not what feeling safe looks like. And so he stopped, you know, yelling. And this one lady that was with him, she would just chat with the monk the whole time. And then when the protesters got ready to leave, she would hug her and say, will you be here next week? And so I don't like I don't know what's happening for her or how. Like, I just look for, like, are there moments where we can just make a little glimpse? Like, sometimes just my presence somewhere, like, I just say to people, well, you know, that's that's not the only voice in Christianity, or, yeah, I don't, you know, like, I don't think that's the only way you have to see this. Or there's other, there's other books, or there's other ways, like, just even a glimpse of, like, hmm, Yeah, that's not the only story in Christianity. And on occasion, folks might be open to it. Because I don't think, I think people have to be really pretty open to change. And it's hard to find those little moments. But if we can be ready for them or open to them when they come, I think that's maybe one way forward.
0: I'm stuck on this visual image of you saving the elephants (laughs) i i'm curious how how do you feel like you have changed how are you a different person because of the experiences in your life
1: um like sometimes people when they like get to know me better they think like like that they like made me grow (laughs) and i'm like yeah but i just feel like there's been this process of just a deeper becoming and a deeper comfort with my own voice and a better use of my ears to understand what's happening in people's lives or in our community or in our world. And I think the part that's the same is this willingness to have your heart broken, right? Like, I loved these elephants because I did a sixth grade project on elephants and I watched a, a PBS special about elephants in Africa and I like wept and my mom and dad were like so kind and supportive and they I wrote letters to the World Wildlife Federation or anybody else you could find so I think what's What's the same is like that space of openness to where there is hurt or heartbreak or pain or some kind of space of violence or domination or harm and being able to see that not just, you know, for the elephants or for the environment, but in all of our neighbors, in all of the spaces of the world being like reassured and confident enough or clear enough To say, well, we have to, we have to do something. We have to work on this or how do we get started? So I think that there has been a becoming in the sense of being more confident in who I am. I I think even that's like the difference between my first and second marriage, right? Is I needed um, like an amplifier to my voice. And then now I, I don't, right? Like I can just have, I can be in partnership with someone who loves me as I am and I don't need them to amplify my voice. Sometimes I need them to be like, just sit with me and, and, and be present or celebrate or just be there when something really bad happens. Um, so that's where I see kind of that growth is like owning my voice. And when you're a small person And a feminine person in those kinds of bodies, like the culture doesn't say, hey, let's listen to that tiny woman a lot. And so just figuring out how to be loud enough or heard or patient enough to stick in there and until someone can hear you or until your voice is in the right place in the right moment.
0: Do you see that you are having an impact on people around you? By modeling who you are, modeling that journey, modeling your faith, but also being that encouragement that perhaps acquired a voice, a person, a smaller person. And I don't mean in size, but perhaps in confidence, how that person can perhaps grow into the fuller human they could be. Um, Do you understand that you are a leader for those people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I know that parents actively choose to come to the Abbey because they want their kids and sometimes particularly their daughters to see a clergywoman, right? And it's easy for me to forget how that's not everywhere. And like my daughter's experience is so different. Uh, One of my best friends from seminary came to town when she was like two and was like, Uncle Dawson's going to preach tomorrow. And she was just offended what boys can be pastors i don't think so and dawson had to convince her that he'd give it a good try and and uh he's he's like you're right lila boys have had really made made some big mistakes as pastors and so and then like when he was preaching she said mommy mommy he's not wearing the pastor clothes and she pulled on my apron and i was like well you have the most unusual church experience of any kid I know. Um, But that's what I hope for, right? Like I hope the kids growing up at the Abbey don't have a bunch of junk they have to unpack later. I, I just don't want them to have that kind of violent, domineering church language and church history. I want them to have the beautiful parts that make you stronger and give you courage to face Goliath or or give you that presence to speak up even if your voice is a little shaky. And I hope that we have fun as we're doing it. I also feel like it's been a good space for me to be able to highlight. So we have a, a pride service every pride um, season and and I try to give different voices space or try to highlight different voices in our community at different times and so how we can like some of our young adults or young people like how we can get them to the microphone to try it out um, or into practice to try it out or leading an event or a protest or a gathering or something to to work those muscles of organizing I think those are leadership skills skills that we can make space to teach until, I don't know, our public education system is totally different and there's a class on how to organize in high school.
0: Why wait till high school?
1: Why wait? Yeah, it should be probably in fourth grade. When you when you go to the state capitol, you should also learn about organizing. Lila will be fourth grade next year, so I'll probably try to teach her then.
0: She'll probably be teaching the class.
1: <laughs> she, she had a birthday protest when she turned five and she called it a shout out Trump had just been elected and she was like don't people know to love people like why aren't people we just need to get all the people together and tell them to love people don't be mean so we had a, a birthday protest for her and she, someone made her a little logo and it was pretty cute <music>
0: My guest today has been the Reverend Deborah McKnight, founding pastor of Urban Abbey. Deborah, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.